One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. Follow us on Twitter at Cooper McKim and at WY Public Radio with the hashtag Carbon Valley Pod. It's mid-April 2021, and the announcement of the Energy Cosia Carbon X Prize winner is finally set to happen next week. For months, I've been waiting to find out when this day would come. I've been asking the prize for like half a year when they'll announce, no response. I've been asking Jason Salfie too, since I thought he might have an inside scoop. Is it sounding like April or May is the announcement time? July is what I hear. July? Yeah. So so I heard, yeah, basically what they're saying is somewhere between May and July. I, I'm just telling everybody July so they stop asking me when I'm going to hear from that Carbon X Prize. But then, one fateful Wednesday morning, not in July, I learn an announcement is finally coming. The winner will be announced in three weeks, over Zoom. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I thought there would be more time. I was also pretty surprised that it was just sort of unfolding this quickly, but... This is Noah Greenspan, who's been following the competition as closely as me. She's an undergrad at Princeton University and a producer for the show. It's exciting. You know, I'm glad we don't have to wait for the summer and we can just kind of... I know. And the band-aid off. I know that, that that's a really good way to describe it. It does feel like a band-aid rip-off, which is, which is strange. Like just to, to, to put a finer point on it, this is something that's been unfolding for six years. And then we get two weeks notice for it to be done. Yeah. You know, obviously the pandemic screwed everything up. It just does feel anticlimactic. It turns out Jason is also pretty surprised. This is all ending so quickly. He says he's usually not bumped off his game, but this did it. So why the abrupt ending? Well, at least part of it, XPRIZE is announcing a new competition within a few days of this announcement. The $100 million prize for carbon removal will also pit carbon capture teams against one another. The announcement comes with a dramatic montage of climate activists. This prize is similar to the Carbon X Prize, but different in some important ways. For one, the prize is five times larger than the Carbon X Prize at $100 million, so half my annual payday. Not to mention, this is the largest incentive prize in history. Naturally, it's getting a lot of hype. It helps that the prize was funded by the famous and eccentric Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla. The competition feels to me like another vote of confidence lately in carbon capture technology. Biden has been a big supporter of the tech since he's been in office. It just feels like there's some determination to see the industry take off in a way there hasn't always been. With all the hype around this new prize, I'm thinking about how it felt when the Carbon X Prize was announced. Having followed something like this from start to finish, the excitement is familiar. I wonder though, what it'll look like at the very end. Well, a full year later than expected, 
the Carbon X Prize is coming to its final conclusion, the announcement of a winner. Whoever it was had to have set up a sick demonstration. But frankly, I don't even know if all the teams were able to submit data. If Dimensional even did well after I left Gillette. Jason, perhaps needless to say, is pleased with how they did. When we hit the field in Gillette, I felt like all of a sudden we popped out of the gravitational field of, of the sun and just boomed forward. Digging in a little deeper, it wasn't all perfect. There were obstacles, wildfire smoke, frozen pipes, missing parts here and there. Even so, they got great data, an impressive conversion rate, and their tracker generated high temperatures. So, does Jason think they'll win? Can they overcome being the only solar company, unclear rules, coming in late, everything? It's one of those things that we did our best. We got the data we needed. We hit the rubric as best we could. And, um, you know, it's going to be up to the judges. I know already, though, that we did win because we got the data that we needed. But... Did they actually win the whole competition? From Wyoming Public Media, this is Carbon Valley. Following the race to develop an unlikely climate solution, I'm Cooper McKim. It's April 2021, and I have one question. What's next? for XPRIZE teams for carbon capture, and especially for Wyoming. The week of the Carbon XPRIZE announcement is finally here. In my head, there's gonna be this big online event. Maybe they'll zoom in all the teams and then flourish, announce the winner. American Idol style. Dramatic music, maybe, right before the last rose. But then I get an email from an XPRIZE person, and they ask if I want to know the winner. I'm like, no, I want this to be a surprise. But then I learn Jason knows who won. So do all the teams. I asked Jason not to tell me because I, as one individual, want it to be a surprise. On the day of the event, I still don't know the winner. Noah Greenspan and I get on the phone to ponder who might take the cake. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm excited to see who won. Do you want to talk about our, like, predictions at all? Noah thinks they'll split up the prize because of craziness with COVID stuff. Jason wants that too. I think that they're actually going to choose one of the international teams, maybe um, Wayne. I was actually thinking that too. I was thinking that too. I was thinking them or CO2 Concrete. Yeah, CO2 Concrete would kind of be the obvious one, right? Because they had the most time. They were able to get on site the earliest. You know, Dimensional sort of said they're the team to beat. Oh, shit. I found the answer. You did? I just Uh, just Googled it. (laughs) Do you want me to tell you? Yeah. Okay. Um. So after two and a half years, I don't find out from some big reveal, but Noah, happening upon it online as I try to avoid the answer. It is UCLA. 
Whoa. The UCLA team, CO2 Concrete, has won. Apparently, they've changed their name to Carbon Built. Wow, okay. Wow. So this is the also, team that we kind of expected. When did their name become Carbon Built? On another note, how many name changes? Wait, Carbon had? Built? Oh my God, they changed again. So yeah, Carbon Upcycling, who changed their name to CO2 Concrete, and then again to Carbon Built, has officially won. Turns out, Brad was right all those months ago. Carbon Built for the win. Soon after the call, the final presentation happens. It's a simple setup, not a grand finale like I had in my head. There are two winning teams announced, the one from Wyoming, Carbon Built, and the one from the Canadian half of the competition, which this podcast didn't follow, Carbon Cure Technologies, both pursuing CO2 to concrete. Neither seems particularly excited, which I guess makes sense given they already know they won. There's still a formal reveal of sorts of the two winners' names on the screen with this sound below it. I connect after the presentation with CEO and director of Carbon Built, Rahul Shendere. Rahul is laid back, but confident. I ask if he expected to win, given some other teams thought they would. Well, I think we we always knew we had a shot, right? I mean, I th- a lot of this was based on our ability to execute. We knew that there were teams that had struggled with the, the execution side of things. In fact, Rahul says their ability to operate despite COVID is a testament to their strength in the real world. Well, COVID certainly created an, an artificial situation in many ways. I also think about it in terms of like, is the process, is the team, is everything else robust enough to withstand sort of all the things that real life throws at it? Carbon built a team that prides itself on simplicity, its use of readily available products, and tapping into a massive market of concrete production, which emits more than the entire country of India. Carbon Built has high hopes for what they can do, and XPRIZE helped push them closer. Next steps, set up an even bigger demonstration, maybe 10 to 15 times. Partner with the National Carbon Capture Center. Not in Wyoming, though. Right, if you were just trying to to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and not necessarily turn it into a product, then I think Wyoming would be fantastic for, for lots of reasons, right? But I mean, one of the challenges with concrete is it doesn't travel very far. It's made very locally. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the challenge with, with thinking about uh, locating there permanently. So why did Carbon Built win? I want to hear from prize folks themselves. So I set up a call with Carbon X Prize lead, Marcus Extivore. Hey, you guys. What's up? Sorry, I'm late. Hey, that's all right. Good to talk to you. Yeah, how's it going, Cooper? Turns out Marcus has a lot of new information for me. First, that every team was able to submit data, except for one, the Scotland team and Carbon Capture Machine, who had to drop out. Judges did discuss splitting up the prize money, as Jason wanted. And importantly, Marcus explains why Carbon Built won over the other teams. They won because they had the best demonstration. So they had all the data required. They had, you know, 1,200 hours. That was a requirement. They had a 30-day run. That was a requirement. They had the lowest energy consumption, uh, the biggest market potential. As for their strength over dimensional, well, 
Marcus says, first, Dimensional had a pretty small demonstration. They didn't sort of do anything wrong per se. They are a photochemical driven reaction. So that means they are energy intensive, but they can get a lot of their energy from solar. Uh, and that should be a big bonus for them. I really want to underline this because I've wondered the entire series whether the team with the biggest net reduction of emissions would actually win. In other words, the team with the biggest climate impact. That would seem logical, right? I asked the prize, so who had the biggest net reduction? Dimensional? Carbon built? Answer, who knows? Tracking that data wasn't a requirement. And anyway, the X Prize isn't going to release team by team data. One thing we did know at least, using solar did benefit Dimensional, though not enough, apparently. In the end, I think they had a great demo and they, they deserve a lot of credit for getting a lot of things done. Uh, in the end, Carbon built essentially the judges just selected as doing it a little bit better. More data, better quality score, and that's why Carbon built won in the end. So I have, I have a confession to make because, so, so like the whole time you've been saying to me like, oh, you know, you seem so laid back about this. You're, you know, you don't, how can you not really care if you win or lose? I was actually feeling pretty neutral about it the whole time. But when I found out we didn't win, I, I felt pretty crushed. Actually, I was definitely like, no way. I can't, really? believe, I can't believe it. And I just had, I was just so excited about what the team had accomplished and, you know, where we were headed and all the momentum we have just to hear that we, we didn't win. It, it had an outsized impact on me, actually. This has been the response I've been waiting for. I really wasn't sure where Jason would land at the end of all this. Some months, Jason would say, we're going to win this thing. Others, it doesn't matter if we win. So it's kind of nice to finally have a resolution there. Yeah, he wanted to win. You know, in hindsight, it would be unnatural to some degree to have, you know, there be a, such a large sum of money on the line and then not really care. I wonder how Dimensional's Brad Brennan is feeling about the competition. He's been skeptical about staying in since the start. So did it pay off? Was it worth it in the end? Um, I think it's a wash in, in many respects when it comes to like the, uh, the limitations it put on us and the, way, and the, the time we had to waste doing things that maybe weren't as relevant for our, our long-term technological path. We probably could have done everything two or three times faster if we had been able to choose our own site. Plus, he says, it would have been helpful to get a ranking. If they were in second place, say, they could market that to investors. So I ask, would you have done it again? Oh, man. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I don't know exactly where we would be right now if we weren't at the X Prize. Because, Brad says, it did push them, gave them access to resources, let them collect important data, and allowed them to learn about themselves. Jason says it pushed Dimensional way faster towards commercialization. Well, the Carbon X Prize is suddenly over. There are no grand soirees to celebrate the hard work or discussion between teams, talking about what was tough or fun. No new companies or anything tangible in Wyoming. I don't know, I just kind of logged off the online webinar and it was over. 
sitting here in my home slash office thinking, am I done now? Story over? Because it sure doesn't feel that way. So I do what I always do. Drive back to Gillette. drive, I'm wondering, what's actually next for coal communities? Has there been enough progress from a decades plus work towards enabling carbon capture, pursuing the Carbon Valley vision? I'm just going to learn what, what progress there is and what folks are thinking about around town. On the long, hot road to Gillette, I pass a massive wind farm reaching out to the horizon. I see a billboard of a mother holding a baby saying, love them both. I see pump jacks gently rotating up and down. A sign for an indoor water park offers to repair hail damage. As I enter town and soon drive out the other side, it's clear the XPRIZE, or any of the other steps we've been talking about, haven't magically transformed this region into a carbon valley. That there aren't yet companies swallowing up CO2 and turning it into valuable products. Outside of town now, I arrive at a dusty industrial site for another potential piece of a future carbon valley. Hello again. We're going to go ahead and get started here. I'm awkwardly trying to mingle. Hey, what's up, folks? Is it weird that I'm wearing hiking pants and you're in a full suit? Pretty much all the state and local leaders behind Carbon Valley are here because I'm at a groundbreaking ceremony. This currently empty plot will eventually be home to something called the Wyoming Innovation Center. The crowd is gathered under a white shelter, then directed to take off their hats and face the flag. Oh, see, can you see by the dawn's early light? This site right here is the latest in a series of steps towards making Carbon Valley a thing. The integrated test center isn't far from here. Recently, it was announced that a project 200 times the size of UCLA's demonstration is expected to set up there, giving leaders major hope carbon capture could help coal plants yet. There have been more steps, too, to make Carbon Valley a thing just since last episode. A network of pipelines to transport CO2 has received federal approval, a necessary step if companies like UCLA or Dimensional will ever come to the area. All this has given Governor Mark Gordon the confidence to commit to net zero emissions by 2050, an enormous step for an emitter the size of Wyoming. Suddenly, newspapers around the state are writing about this region rebranding itself as a carbon valley, as if it's just now happening. And now there's this, first steps towards the Wyoming Innovation Center. Instead of burning coal, it hopes to host companies that'll turn it into products like carbon fiber mats or soil amendments. One person tells me maybe coal to products will start paying off faster than carbon capture. When it's his turn to speak, Governor Mark Gordon brings it up, saying the vision for Carbon Valley is growing. All this will help keep coal around. Coal isn't going away, and it is our most abundant and readily available energy source, but we can use it for so much more. There's been a sort of quiet urgency this whole series. 
to see new opportunities in Wyoming. Because there are thousands fewer miners today than there were in the state just a decade ago. Half the volume of production. And it's set to just get tougher. Things are surging right now for coal, but a lot more coal plants will still retire by 2030. And by 2050, federal data predicts coal will account for just a tenth of American electricity, down from 50% not too long ago. The speaking section of the event is over. So I am lucky enough to continue walking around, making conversation. The governor stands facing a couple big cameras alongside like 20 other people, all wearing nicer clothes than me. Everybody's holding a shovel, fake digging into the ground. I find someone wearing Birkenstocks. We're buddies. While the shoveling happens, I'm thinking about the urgency for efforts like this, or any of it, to start paying off, create jobs, give coal additional value, do what Carbon Valley set out to do. Rusty Bell is here today, a county commissioner who's been a kind anchor for me to understand coal bankruptcies and Carbon Valley itself. He's always been a straight shooter, so I just ask him, where is the Carbon Valley? He says it's years, not decades away. But yeah, we're still early on. I think reality a lot of times sets in on these things, and when you start talking about it, you have to picture it as you're setting the stage for something that's going to be beyond you. And, and so certainly that's, that's what I'm hoping, that we lay the found foundation here. Rusty believes there will be demand for a Carbon Valley, that the groundwork is set. Now companies need to come in and connect the dots. I hear there is complete confidence that all these efforts will pay off before coal demand is just gone. It's been helpful to talk to decision makers for months, years, but I want to just kind of get out now and talk to real people. At this crossroads, I do wonder how folks in town are feeling about all this. People who depend on Gillette making the best choice now for its future who may wonder less, will Carbon Valley come together, and more, will everything be okay? Any interest in being on the video for a second? I'm in a super big hurry. Okay. Have a good day. You too. So, I do what any normal person would do. I plot myself down in front of the biggest Walmart I've ever seen, and start asking people. I'm sitting behind a plastic fold-out table in the shade on an otherwise oppressively hot day. Folks are walking into the grocery side as I ask them for an interview. I'd say about one in every 10 people would sit down and talk with me. I meet folks who've been here their whole lives and others who just arrived. Right, we're just now getting the house set up. Right now we're just exploring town, right? Looking for jobs and getting it going. I ask folks why they live in Gillette. Some hate it, others love it the views, the amenities. It didn't take long for the good vibes, though, to give way to more serious topics. What seems universal, concern about the future. What do you see as the future of, of the town? <laughs> Graveyard. Graveyard? Why is that? It's only gonna last so long. It's gone, it's gone. Yeah, and you see the town going with it? I should do something. 
it just seems they're so hung up on coal for so many years. It's like, we don't know anything else to do. Just to repeat that, he's saying Wyoming just doesn't know what to do without coal. Others voice concerns too. So, because that's how most of the people are, you know, living here is either coal or oil. I mean, if we could find, you know, another source, I think we need to find a source before we just eliminate coal. Most of my time in front of the Walmart is spent waiting. I brought a cooler with me, and there's like this cream fruit soda of some kind in there. I'm really jonesing for it. At one point, a mom and daughter drive right in front of me, blasting tunes and singing to every word. More and more people soon start taking interest in talking with me. And soon, I was hearing stories about the uh, thrills of a boom-bust economy. I hear stories of folks leaving town. And the natural next question, what do you want to do about that? I think they need to get their stuff together with the economy and stop spending money on stuff that really doesn't need to be spent on. And there's a lot of other stuff that families need help with stuff in the community and stuff like that. Um, but yet they're, they're making it hard for people to get help with their rent and everything like that when need be. So I heard a lot of answers to the what's next question. Quite a few people are very much on board with the Carbon Valley idea. I hear from several folks, including coal miners, continuing coal is what they want to see, however that can happen, because it means the town can continue. I hope they spend more money to make clean coal so they can keep them coal mines running. We want to see clean coal. Yeah. Okay. They can build a power plant that'll run without any emissions, any bad emissions. You know, let them do that. We keep mining coal. That keeps... We pay, the coal mines pay a lot of taxes and stuff like that. They miss that revenue here now. So for as many people who like the idea of continuing coal however possible, I hear from folks who had some different thoughts on the region's future. So yeah, I think that that's where Wyoming's choking at as industry right now. I think that we got so hold, held up with coal and oil that there's nothing that we really want to fall back on and then we have too many people in Congress and Senate that are afraid to open the doors to new industry to replace what we've lost. Maybe incorporate legalized marijuana. What about investing more in recreation, tourism, producing alcohol? I heard all this should have started a long time ago. So you think if they switch strategies, maybe? Yeah, they should have done that about 30 years ago. 30 years ago? Well, at least started thinking about it then. Yeah. Because it takes time to change. And uh, we don't have enough industry for people to build their careers in, so we need to be open to diversifying our industries quite substantially. I have my fair share of conversations with the area's youth as well. Some told me they planned on leaving when they were older. Others had some astute political opinions. Well, my mom's saying about getting rid of oil, that's kind of what Biden wants with electricity cars. Not oil, <laughs> ones that use oil. And about eight years, and I am talkative, and I have ADHD, so don't expect me not to be idle. <laughs> I have to say, sitting here in front of Walmart, I'm almost giddy. It just feels good to talk to all these new folks, now sipping on my chilled cream soda, especially to people who have a stake in the what's next question being answered. When we come back, 
more people give their two cents on the future of coal country. Gadget Lab is a podcast from Wired that's all about how technology is changing our future. Each week on the show, Wired hosts Lauren Good and Michael Kalor unpack the news about the latest apps, devices, or whatever market has just been destabilized by an Elon Musk tweet. The show explores how we connect, move around, and make sense of our device-filled lives. Learn everything you need to know about the tech of tomorrow by listening to Gadget Lab today. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. After sitting at Walmart for a while, I think about who else I could talk to now. Who might have some thoughts on Gillette's future? Do you remember all the way back at the start of episode one, I sat down at that diner? I was there with a young guy who just lost his job at a coal mine after the company Black Jewel went bankrupt. Ty Cordingly was his name. I remember he looked tired and he was just frustrated at many things, including Wyoming's leadership. I mean, at some point, the economic realities is going to force hard decisions on the community. And, but like the, the younger people, I've seen that. The people that left the state that I worked with, they didn't want to leave, but there was no other choice. So, Within months, Ty became one of those people, moving to Camden, South Carolina, for a job in a gold mine. It's been two years now since we've spoke. Yeah, Cooper? Hey, Ty. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Not too bad. I tell Ty a lot's happened around here since he's left. More bankruptcies, and a lot more investment into the Carbon Valley vision. I tell him there's been a lot of progress there, though it's still early. That hope right now is to keep coal mining going for years to come. Ty is not into it. Now it seems like, oh, this is a distraction. It's not, I feel the state is so addicted. It's like addicted to easy royalty payments and money. Like without the money, they don't know what to do, so. So I ask, what do you want for Wyoming? I want my nieces and nephews to have an opportunity if they want to stay in Wyoming, to to, to be able to stay in Wyoming. And I don't want them to see like uh, their parents struggling, you know, like that's not good when they're on reduced hours tighter paychecks, like, I want the, the kids to like, hey, if, if they're happy and love Wyoming, that there's a place for them. I would challenge, I guess, the older generation of Wyoming to look, look at the future, the next crop. That seems like a pretty fundamental request to me. Something we all want for future generations, I would hope. Before we sign off, Ty tells me how important this story is how there are now many more Gillette residents moving down to South Carolina. Others he hears about just moving away too. In the past few years, I've gotten to know someone else who was coincidentally also laid off during the Black Jewel bankruptcy, Lynn Huskinson, a tough, lively woman with short hair who got into coal mining pretty young. I've learned a lot from Lynn over the years, how a company's bankruptcy isn't some monolith, but a thing with individual impacts. We meet up outside of a prairie, Still in my car, Lynn makes sure I put on sunscreen and have enough water. She's got her own bottle slung over her shoulder and looks ready to hike. Similar to Ty, she's skeptical of any effort that treats planning for the future as just trying to keep coal mining going. They've got to do something to make amends. For workers. Yeah, and this whole light on 
uh, carbon capture and nuclear. It's just like a shiny object to me. Like, don't think about everything that's happening. Do you think the governor went out to the Salvation Army and asked him how they're doing over there? Doubt it. She wants to focus on issues facing the community now. How folks are housing and food insecure, getting laid off now, forced to leave the state. She says more and more individuals are going to the Salvation Army for help. Before Black Fuel bankruptcy, we had like 100 families or 100 boxes that we were uh, distributing. Now, today, it's 2,000 plus. The wind kind of interrupted her here. Lynn says Salvation Army is giving out 20 times the amount of boxes since the Black Jewel bankruptcy in 2019. In other words, people have urgent needs. She knows this because she's part of this group called Gillette Assistance League that donates funds to the Salvation Army. With all of Lynn's concerns for the community, it would be great to have some kind of outlet to voice her concerns, a way for her to comment on decisions being made for Gillette's future whether that's to pursue coal to products or carbon capture. Shouldn't there be a poll or something? Like, do we want to do this? I'm curious actually too. Is there a more formalized group making decisions about Gillette's future? Perhaps one that includes citizens, businesses? I reach out to the mayor's office and ask. I learn, not really. Without that, Lynn has found other ways to have her voice heard, even setting up a campaign to run for state office here arguing the state has got to stop putting all these efforts into saving coal, saving coal plants. Gillette's problems are larger than that. The perspective needs to be wider on welcoming way more industries, on preserving funds for reclamation. She spoke more about all this at a webinar recently on her alternate vision. I don't believe we have time to study anymore. We know what's happening. It's happening right now, and we need to move more quickly and work at engaging our community to find different revenue to replace the huge loss of the mineral revenue. As far as uh, firsthand knowledge of energy transition, I would say 20 to 30% of your production should be a warning sign and a glaring sign of transition. So if you can't already tell, there are other visions for the area. Lynn's is something called a just energy transition. So what is it? It's a broader framework that allows a community to transition from a resource-dependent economy to one that's more diverse and stable. There's a literal blueprint on the website to help coal communities transition, examples of it working elsewhere, in Minnesota and West Virginia. The idea starts with a fund that gets money, say, from the state, federal government, or companies, utilities, moving away from coal. Perhaps it's spent on workforce development, training opportunities, or expansion of broadband. Perhaps it could help build up Wyoming's strengths, help complete studies on job creation or development opportunities, jumpstart a larger local food economy. It also has an eye on addressing climate change and favors developing renewables, finds funds to ensure coal mines are properly reclaimed. Just Transition efforts also mention carbon capture as one of many efforts to become more diverse economically and replace that coal revenue. Maybe companies could come to Wyoming and utilize the infrastructure that we're expected to have. Recent analysis finds carbon capture combined with coal is even more of a financial long shot than it was when this podcast started. But carbon capture more generally? Sure, that could help Wyoming. And it certainly has Biden's support. 
though may need a few trillion dollars more to be widely commercial. This just transition idea is also meant to enable local folks to be in control of their future. It's a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down one, using a collective eye to put together a united vision for the area. Just transition means to me that we just have to come together and we have to talk to everybody, not just coal miners or energy workers. It's like our whole community. That's, it's just, you know, it's all of us. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm coming from. This just energy transition framework is actually already being employed elsewhere in West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky. In fact, Colorado's governor just put $15 million towards a just transition fund. So will it happen in Wyoming? Well, there's certainly a growing discussion about it, but I hear that it likely won't unless there's actually support from legislators or the governor's office. An acknowledgement that Wyoming is facing a transition at all. Once that happens, perhaps it could follow in the footsteps of, say, New Mexico create an authority or an agency focused on energy transition. Until then, it may be just talk. Hearing this from Lynn feels like a departure from when I first started covering these layoffs, where I often heard a voice of helplessness among folks out of a job, which makes a ton of sense. Lynn is just saying, yeah, things suck right now, but here's a way out. The federal government wants to help with this vision too. Not exactly a just transition though, just a broader focus on helping adapt coal and power plant communities to a new economy, investing millions in near-term and long-term solutions, from reclamation efforts to greener hydrogen and, yeah, carbon capture. There's already a federal working group for all this. Here's President Biden talking about it. We're never going to get the men and women who dug the coal and built the nation. We're going to do right by them make sure they have opportunities to keep building the nation in their own communities and getting paid well for it. As I hear all this, I wonder what makes a good transition. Are we on the right path with Carbon Valley or a just energy transition? Is any one vision better than another? I should probably talk to someone in rural economic development. I'm a researcher with Headwaters. And this morning I had a breakfast sandwich I have a breakfast sammy almost every day. This is Kristen Smith with Headwaters Economics, a think tank that focuses on the very issue we're talking about. They're independent and nonpartisan. And just FYI, you may be able to hear some kids walking outside during our Zoom call. Headwaters is very familiar with the issues Wyoming is facing. The organization has a freaking report called Replacing Coal Revenue and Investing in Economic Transitions. I asked Kristen to explain what does a strong transition look like? I mean, really the ultimate goal is to help, help communities be able to thrive and direct their own future. I think about that a lot. Like, how can we help communities have the flexibility and the resources to become what they want to be? They need stable revenue to do that. So I ask, what about the Carbon Valley vision? Finding new ways to use coal. Yeah, I mean, my initial reaction is there's no easy solution to economic transitions. And you can substitute one industry for the next industry, but it does not remove the ultimate problem, which is that your revenue structure is probably too narrow and your economic structure is probably too narrow. Kristen says 
it doesn't matter if it's carbon capture or renewables or I don't know, paper, whatever. Even if any one industry takes off, it's not addressing the more structural issues. If that leaves, you're right back where you started. Kristen explains a successful transition could certainly include parts of a Carbon Valley vision, but that the vision itself may need to be broader. Address the fact that the tax structure relying so heavily on minerals may just be outdated. So what can communities do right? What's proven to work? Well, there's not really one answer. But first things first, start saving whatever revenue you can while the mineral industry is still making money. Build a fund. So from the get-go, hopefully what you're doing with all the revenue that you're getting from that resource, you're treating it as special revenue. So that's not revenue to spend on everyday operating expenses. It's revenue that you know is going to be gone one day. So Headwaters has a long list of strategies that have proven to work for a successful transition. It starts with this fund, and then that could give way to investing in assets that will continue to generate wealth, broaden the tax base. And she says having a collaborative group come together of citizens, businesses, officials, that part is kind of super important. That's where the whole vision thing comes from, right? Gets decided on. In my head, gets Lynn in a room with the folks in front of Walmart, say. Kristen acknowledges how difficult and long-term this process really is. I just always think of like, what if someone was like, hey, community members in Vail or Aspen, we are in a situation where those ski resorts have to close down. So we need you to reimagine your community without skiing. So have at it what would you do? <laughs> and, and you just think about like those communities that are so embedded with their economic structure. That's actually a really hard thing to think about some of these communities and like a post-ski world, like what would that actually look like? And yet, like here we are asking all of these communities with coal to figure that out. All of this is making me sort of think it makes so much sense that the state's biggest effort right now is just continuing its resources because the alternative is completely transforming. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think like anyone who doesn't understand that point is failing to like have empathy for the state and for these community members. It's a very challenging situation. This conversation was really important for me. It's a reminder that coming together and figuring out a stable path forward is an insanely huge ask. It's also a reminder that, to some extent, everyone's on the same page. Whether someone wants to pursue Carbon Valley or a just energy transition, there's a common goal. For the community to continue to thrive, be a stable place to live, and that it'll probably take some disagreement to get there. It's now been two and a half years since Jason Salfi and I started talking, since I reached out to him out of the blue to ask if he would let me follow along through this competition. And now, in our last conversation for the podcast, I just want to get a sense of how far they've come and get a sense of what's next for them. Hey, Cooper. Hey. Nice flannel. Jason tells me Dimensional is moving fast. At one point, he imagined the company would get to market in, what, a decade? Now they're looking at a commercial-scale demonstration in 2023. Their conversion rate of CO2 has jumped from 1% to around 70. 
and the whole vision for the company is really starting to come together. Remember Jason in the beginning of this show? He was excited and passionate, but the vision there was still kind of abstract. Now Jason has a very clear idea of what he wants Dimensional to be, selling greener jet fuel. I want your customers to ask if you're flying with Dimensional Energy. Mm. Uh, I'd like to have a brand out there that people recognize. And so it would be, it would be really wonderful to, to hear people say, you know, you put in dimensional energy in that, in that plane to, to, propel our, to propel us to our next destination. And this is kind of crazy. They're even in discussion with a major commercial airline. I don't know how much you can talk about it, but that is something that's, um, that seems kind of massive. Yeah, um, yeah. That's the dream. We've gotten, yeah, we've gotten to the point where we can attract the attention of the end customer, you know, and that's a major U.S. airline that's interested in what we're doing because they see sustainable aviation fuels coming from carbon dioxide um, as a viable pathway. And Jason says he's not sure if all this would have come together quite so fast, if not for the Carbon X Prize. It has put us on a critical path towards scale and, and commercialization that I don't think we otherwise would have been on. Um, if there wasn't that sort of prize mentality in place that was with that aggressive timeline um, that we had to follow. Next steps, make the technology more efficient and then scale up and up and down. No, just kidding. Again, not in Wyoming though, but in Arizona, where it's being overseen by former intern, Adrian Lee. So I'm Adrian. I am the R&D site manager or process engineer for our scale-up site in Tucson, Arizona. Adrian is in charge of taking the reactors built in Ithaca and trying them out, making things actually work in the field. The technology is really new, so it's really up to us what direction we want to bring it. What this also means, Dimensional has hired a woman. I ask how it is working with a bunch of dudes. I've never really seen myself as a minority. So if anything, they definitely bring that up more often than I do. Really? Like they're like, oh, uh, we need to accommodate (laughs) or like they try not to say guys. (laughs) And I guess, I mean, I've gone to school with mostly guys. So she says there is one annoying thing, though there aren't actually bathrooms on their site in Tucson. Maybe that's okay for men, but it's annoying for her. Meanwhile, Jason has added new board members who plan to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion within the company culture more generally. Oh, and there's some big news about Brad, too. Brad will be moving here shortly. Moving? Like, Mm -hmm. permanently? Yeah. I mean, he's always enjoyed the sun, so I'm not sure if he's moving to keep me company or to be closer to the sun. (laughs) I think about how far Dimensional has come since just 2018. I wonder if one day it'll be a household name and this podcast will go down in history for tracking their first chapter. I hear this wider field of carbon capture utilization could be more widely commercial by the year 2030, with way more companies like Dimensional and Carbon Built out there making money. 
some of these companies will set up in Wyoming, be a new player and a brand new chapter for the state. Maybe it won't just be a carbon valley, but some conglomeration of all these visions. For now though, one chapter of this story is coming to a close. More than two and a half years later. I say my goodbyes to Jason. Yeah, I mean, on a more nostalgic note, as we're wrapping this up, you know, hopefully it won't be the last time we talk ever, but do you regret participating in this podcast? No, no, no. I've had fun, you know, getting to know you and um, this has been great. I mean, you've provided a modern biography for me to look back at and, and see a snapshot of our life. So it's, it's cool. Thank you. All righty. Talk to you later. Talk to you. Bye. Yeah, bye. Now, I'm on my way home in Gillette. On the road with more trucks periodically pulling off into one coal mine here, another there. About an hour south of Gillette now, I make an abrupt decision and take a left turn. After another 15 minutes driving, I pull over to the side of the road and listen. The train is moving slowly with each car stacked neatly with coal. So I am sitting out next to a Union Pacific train going by. I drove about an hour south of Gillette to get here, past about 10 coal mines and a whole lot of pump jacks. The train that sitting next to me says Building America on the front car, 7382 on the side. But I'm also sitting here at this spot for another reason. I'm now at a particular mine. On the other side is the Black Thunder Mine with big, flat, gray walls. The valleys surrounded by walls curve left and right into the distance. There's not a cloud in the sky. My car door is open, and I'm parked just at the lip of the mine. It really is something to look at. I see shovels moving in the distance, like massive space bugs. A few trucks pass, with the drivers lifting their hand from the steering wheel and greeting. I feel the warmth of the day. I'm sitting half in and half out of the car. The Black Thunder Mine is massive. It produces roughly 10% of the entire nation's coal. What's also special about this mine? It's set to close. There's no immediate plan for that or anything, but its owner, Arch Resources, has been very explicit about wanting to get out of the thermal coal game. The second largest producer of coal in the US just saying, nope, we're no longer interested. I wonder where the some 900 people that work here now will go. Already down from 1,600 from 10 years back. It's just crazy to imagine how much coal this mine has supplied to the entire country over the years. That each valley, in turn, is mined coal that's been burned somewhere to keep your lights on. And now Arch has been clear about leaving the basin taking what profits it can get and investing the money elsewhere. 
being here makes me think about this one piece of audio I found from decades ago, where there's just so much hope about the future of coal. That this right here, literally Black Thunder, this is here to stay. Yeah, our reserves here at Black Thunder are in excess of 700 million, up at Cold Creek in excess of 300 million tons. And in the Powder River Basin, the reserves are up in the billions of tons. Well, then you don't anticipate this just being a fly-by-night thing. No, no, they'll be coal mining in this area for a long time. Uh I'm probably not the right person to tell this story. I've never lived in Gillette, so what gives me the right? I do feel invested, though. For the past near half decade, I've been an upfront witness to Cole's demise, each year watching bankruptcy after bankruptcy, unsurprising news of hundreds losing benefits or their jobs entirely, talking to folks who feel those personal challenges and covering the in-court battles. I started to take notes on my phone titled Takeaways. Probably my first one, I nose breathe super loud during interviews that carbon capture solutions may require some deeper looks, that they don't just always equal huge climate solution, that one process may lower CO2, but emits other climate changing emissions, or that, say, a coal plant may be net zero, but what about the coal mines feeding it? Another takeaway, Wyoming has more than one potential solution to its future. And maybe that'll cause conflict, but way too many people care deeply, disagree strongly, for there not to be some progress, some compromise. I'm still looking out at the Black Thunder Mine, this place that decades ago represented hope. The shadow of clouds are moving slowly over the mine, weather clearly starting to shift. So just wanted to sit here and feel that massive change of me watching shovels here now just may look different at some point down the line. how this hole in the earth may soon never be mined at those historic levels again. Maybe it'll be reclaimed or used for something else. But yeah, it is beautiful in a way. And just wanted to feel that. been listening to Carbon Valley, produced by Noah Greenspan and me, Cooper McKim. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Aaron Jones is senior producer. Story editing, courtesy of Melody Edwards, Anna Rader, Aaron Jones, and Noah Greenspan. We had production assistance from Catherine Wheeler, Micah Schweitzer, and Chet Lewis. This whole series is dedicated to my dad, who taught me life is manageable with a little bit of humor. Carbon Valley is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's hard for me to believe you're going to make me sound interesting enough for seven episodes of a podcast. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can really believe that. I will believe it. Come hell or high water. 
If you like what you're hearing, and even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover Carbon Valley so we can keep bringing you stories about one state's economic future.